In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Enifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here again with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. For today's episode, we're going international with global discussions on architecture, engineering, energy, and the indoor environment, and frankly, really the future of humanity in the built environment with our very special guest, Dr. Bjarne Olson, who I think is calling in from Cyprus, if I believe. He'll tell us out here in a second. Uh, Bjarne earned his PhD in heating and air conditioning in 1975 and a Master's of Science in Civil Engineering in 72. Both degrees obtained from the Technical University of Denmark. Today is the director of the International Center for Indoor Environment and Energy and a professor at the Danish Technical University. Bjarni is an ASHRAE fellow and also ASHRAE's current president for the 2017-2018 term. Olson had previously served on the board of directors as the treasurer, vice president, and director at large. Welcome to the show, Bjarni. Thank you. So, Professor, it's really hard to do an introduction worthy of your influence around the world. So let's just stick with your uh, with your ASHRAE presidential theme, which is extending our community with a focus on three directives, extend ASHRAE's global community, extend the technological horizons, and extend the value to members. And for the decades that I have observed your work uh, within and outside of ASHRAE, and also having worked with you on an award-winning journal article along with uh, Professor Kim, a good friend of yours from Seoul, Korea, you really have been living your presidential theme for a good part of your career. At least that's what I've seen. So tell our audience your story. How'd you get to be the president of ASHRAE? Well, it took me like 40, 41 years to become president <laughs> of ASHRAE. But, but there is a fast track. You don't have to wait that many years to become president. But it, it already uh, when I was studying, some probably when I uh, was working on my master in 72 and during my PhD, 74 and 5, I was introduced to ASRAE because I was working related to thermal comfort and the influence on the indoor environment on people. And there ASRAE kind of had a leading role. The publications in this area was often made at ASRAE uh, conferences and ASRAE had its own uh, lab to do investigations. And that time it was in uh, Kansas State University. And my professor, he had spent one year in the US to do a lot of studies with human uh, subjects and which formed the basis for his uh, doctoral thesis. So we had visitors who were involved in ASRAE, like uh, Professor Ralph Nevins and Kaki from Yale University. So it was quite natural that my professor, Fanger, he asked me when I finished my PhD to go to ASRAE, send a paper and give a presentation. And that's how it started in 1977, uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, wow. my first ASRAE meeting. 
So I have to, I have to, for our audience, I have to put a pin in something you just said there. So, uh, Dr. Fanger, yes, famous yes. for many things to do with our business. Could you just give our listeners a bit of a background on him? Cause I'm aware of him because I'm old, right? But I don't think <laughs> uh, generations after me realize his impact and significance on our industry. Well, uh, yeah, I think his doctoral thesis and what he worked at was to try to, for thermal comfort, try to put all the parameters together to show the relative influence. So he basically, which has been known, I guess, for years that comfort is depending on both the clothing you wear and how hard you work. Uh, and then the temperatures, uh, both air temperature, radiant temperature, humidity, and velocity. And we have known that for years, and there has been studies looking at the temperature influence on people's comfort. But there has never been uh, a kind of method to integrate all this into like one index or one value for the indoor environment. There has been some attempt to make something like effective temperature where you combine humidity and temperature. So in his studies, he kind of went out from the heat balance of the human body, which is essential for comfort, but it's not enough for comfort because you can be in heat balance when you are sweating a lot. It's not comfortable. You can be in heat balance when you are shivering. That's also not comfortable. So there are some more criteria to it. So he looked at how to establish the heat balance, which equation goes into it. But then he also did a lot of studies to expose people to different combinations of the parameters and get their subjective response. And in this way, he developed a uh, an index for the indoor environment called a predicted mean vote. So so. He, he established this index which integrate all the parameters for comfort. And from when he made his doctoral thesis was in 1970. I worked with him since 1969. It took about eight years. And then we established an ISO standard that kind of standardized it. And a couple of years later, it was included in the ISO standard 55 also as a message. So Bjorn, I got, yeah, I want to draw our attention to the audience just how significant this is because Fanger's PhD thesis was turned into a book. And yes. that book was published by two publishers. One, the Danish Technical University, which is where you were at. That was the Fanger. first one, yes. Yeah. And then I think McGraw-Hill did another one. And McGraw-Hill actually screwed up the publication, so we're not even <laughs> going to talk about that one. We'll talk about the one from the Danish Technical <laughs> University. Because today, and this is, this is really important, today, if, and, it, and it depends on you know, the sort of the supply demand, but today you can search online for that book and you might have to pay anywhere upwards of around five to $600 US for that publication. Oh. It's not an easy book to get. They come up every once in a while. But you don't want to buy the McGraw-Hill version. You want to buy the DTU version. It's the red-colored one. So that's a, that's a pretty heavy price for a PhD thesis, one well, of the most expensive yeah. ones I know of. Well, I should say it was not a PhD thesis. Oh. It was a doctor thesis. He, he, he didn't make a PhD, but you can make uh, later on in your career a doctoral degree. 
Uh, so it was not the traditional PhD, it was the doctor degree, ah, a doctor okay. of thesis. And, and that's often a book you, you come out with. Ah, okay. That's a good piece of and information. And I, I so. have both versions on my desk, so. Yeah, wow. so do I. I, I, and, I paid, and I paid big bucks for the McGraw-Hill one, and I got ripped off. <laughs> so what it is, it's it. a, yeah, well, <laughs> you're well-connected. You knew the guy, so. Yeah, yeah I, was his, I was his first uh, PhD student. That's wow. right. Yeah. So, to, again, for our listeners, this would be like Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett working together, right? Yeah. yeah. That would be yeah. the financial yeah. equivalent. You know, this, this yeah. is significant, man. This is very significant. And yeah. I just remember being on trains as a young sort of technician running around London, reading my ASHRAE journal, and they were periodically publishing his work, building up to the ASHRAE standard. And it was fascinating for me because mm-hmm. I'm a total nerd. But, you know, I think that piece of work will impact our business for years and years to come, right? Because that standard's yes. not yes. going away. It's only going to evolve and get better, right? Would you agree yes. with that? Yes, I, I know. I, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about this is that, I mean, this we could go so many places with you, the professor. <laughs> right? And, you know, we've already skipped over your career coming out of university. And so, Adam, I want to come back because yes. Bjarni has some interesting stuff that he did after he got out of school. Right. But – the controversy on thermal comfort still exists. And you actually replied with ASHRAE to a publication, I think it was two years ago, that, a research project that came out. That, And we hear this over and over again, that ASHRAE 55 is restricted to middle-aged men, office workers wearing a suit, <laughs> which is not, right? Or that it's a very narrow band that we have to function in. And neither of those statements are true. Right. So. So, Adam, and you, you talked about this will be a, a document or documents that will last really forever. I can't yeah. ever see why they would, would drop it. But the controversies, of course, will keep coming up every once in a while. So, Bjarni, why? I mean, we've done all this research work. We continue to do research work, but there's still controversy. Why? Well, well, there, there's still, especially thermal comfort. Many people have their own opinion, anecdotal uh, experiences, which are based on one and two or three people. and for thermal comfort, between individuals, there's big differences. But if you go to average of groups, there's not that big difference in what we want and what we prefer. And I think that's some of the controversy that people uh, have their own experience, which may be right. But if you look at, at the average population, we have a lot of knowledge. But now and then, and I think sometimes especially during the last five years, six years, there has been some interest in saying, well, uh, maybe the comfort zone that we normally talk about is too narrow. It can probably be extended by uh, allowing high air velocities and other things, which to a certain degree may be acceptable. But I think and now we're talking about ASHRAE 55, that we are going a little too far. I think people forget, and that's something we have not really taken into account in ASHRAE 55, that there is a thing called productivity. And we know, especially both when the temperature is too high and too low, we lose productivity. Right. And the productivity in an office 1% loss of productivity is the same as the whole energy budget. Wow. <laughs> say say that of, again. Say that again. Yeah. 1% 1, 1% loss of productivity 
is the same as the whole energy budget. So when we look upon the expenditure you have in an office, what you spend to pay people's salary or insurance to work there is 100 times bigger as the energy cost. So that's crazy. So that clearly shows we should not save energy by sacrificing the indoor environment. And that's, I have felt a little the last five, 10 years we have to, yeah. to fight for. I see what you're saying there because I, I feel the focus is on energy because it's easily understood, it's less subjective, it's more quantifiable, right? And, yeah. it, and it fits rules of thumb. So I, I think what's going on with ASHRAE 55 and the difficulty in its mass adoption is there's a Nash equilibrium, there's a game theory, there's an equilibrium between the supply chain and the engineers doing the rule of thumb design and the industry that's not willing to pay for proper design, right? There's this equilibrium in existence. And until a user sort of demands design for them based on productivity or subjective criteria, you know, like, how do I feel? I suppose the housing market might be the better... Is the housing market the better market to push ASHRAE 55 further? Because that's where the owner is has primacy. Well, yes, but especially with, with the housing market where you now are not talking maybe on an average person, but on the individual who's going to live there. Yeah, This person will, of course, like to... Uh, set whatever the thermostat and others so it fulfills his or her needs. Where when you are in office building, you may all have to look at the kind of average of yeah. uh, people. So I think in the housing, the important thing is to provide the user with the possibility of establishing, for example, a temperature within a given range. So we have to make sure when we design the heating, that the minimum of what we normally regard as a comfort range can be obtained. The minimum temperature can be obtained at the design outdoor temperature for winter. And again, part of the comfort range should be obtained in a summer day. Then we don't have any control. That's what we as designer can provide for the housing. and We can guarantee them that that's obtainable. Whatever they put the temperature at can be quite different, and that's up to their own uh, preference. Yeah. Well, when we go in the office, everybody cannot go and change the thermostat there. Normally, we would like to find some kind of average if you don't have a single office. If you have a single office, you are back to individual control again. That's it. I mean, one of the arguments that, and we were in uh, Washington a few years ago, I guess, uh, Bjarni, for the uh, Residential Building Committee workshop. Yes. And, and one of the arguments that I made was, is that in the public world, the language that they use to describe comfort is something that they're born with. They know what cold is. They know what hot is. They know what draft. Is. You don't have to go to school to learn about comfort. You have those words. It's part of your DNA. But you have to go to school to learn about energy and fenestration and U values and thermal connectivity. You know, like the words go on and on and on. And I think one of the problems that we have in the community of engineers is that we tend to use our engineering language within the public realm rather than their language. And, you know, I'm sitting here in downtown Calgary. I'm looking at hundreds of office buildings. Inside each of those buildings, of course, are people. And they don't have energy complaints. They have comfort complaints. 
I think yes. I think it behooves the engineering community to start to use the language of our customers and not force them to learn our language. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, certainly. But I don't think we... So when we have people in an office or when we have at home, I don't think we explaining to people a lot about comfort and that there is difference between people. It's, it's not uncommon that people, they can discuss about what is the right temperature. Uh, they don't agree on the same temperature and they're both right. Uh, because we prefer... Uh, uh, yeah, two different things can be right at the same time. Yes. And, and we don't explain people in an office, for example. We have here a landscaped office and we, we set the thermostat about one, uh, a certain degree. But you may have different opinion. The way you can do it, you can try to adapt your clothing. We never tell them that. That's yes. the way they can get more comfortable without disturbing the others. A certain minimum clothing we need, of course. And in housing, when you buy a house, you don't get any instruction how to operate the house and what you can do for your own comfort. There's no guideline. When you buy a small electronic thing, you get like five pages of instruction, but not when you have a house. <laughs> so I think we can avoid a lot of dispute or comfort problem if we explain people a little more what's what's all about. And we can explain them in their language about cold and warm and so on. I do know that from our own research work that we do at conferences is that 97, and so and this is a statistic that we've been, that has held true now for over 15, almost 20 years now, 15, 15 18 years, that 97% of the industry, that is engineers, architects, builders, manufacturers, are illiterate when it comes to thermal comfort. You know, when you, if, you are, if you're in a room with 100 engineers and you ask them how many people know of the standard, you know, most of them do. But if you ask how many people are actually conversant in the standard, maybe 3%. Mm. It's very, very low. Why is it that a standard that ASHRAE published in 1966 has such a low amount of people aware of it? Yeah, that's right. I don't think I have a good explanation on it. I think... Well, interesting enough, there's probably been more focus on the standard for indoor air quality and ventilation, 62.1. Yeah. And that's probably because people think with the indoor air quality and ventilation, there is a health risk. But they don't think with the thermal environment, thermal comfort, it's only comfort. There's no, no health risk. Yeah. Of course, there is a health risk if you go to extreme. We had a lot of people dying, a heat wave in uh, Paris in 2003, I don't know how many people uh, died because of the thermal. But normally people think it's comfort. Well, we shouldn't be so much concerned about comfort. We should be uh, concerned about health. Yeah, but if you look, when you look at standard 62.1, the required ventilation rate is mainly based on comfort also. <laughs> that's, mm. that's interesting. I've got my own theory on your question, Robert. So mine is that, and it's normally set by how ASHRAE standards are wrapped into building code or adopted via legal cases. So for instance, minimum air quality, minimum indoor air quality has had legal cases and has had legal precedent and it's wrapped mm. up in OSHA legislation, right? And then building codes, certain ASHRAE standards have sort of been adopted or co-opted into building codes in certain parts of the world. 
because standard 55 is a lot more subjective and, you know, it's hard to sue because I don't feel comfortable. It's easy to sue because I've been made ill or I've been hurt, but it's hard to sue because I get hot and cold. This is the whole problem with our industry, right? Yeah. No one dies from being hot or cold unless there's a heat wave or an super extreme. But, you know, if you're a structural engineer and you screw up the I-beam calculation, yeah, that can have some consequences, right? So, so I totally agree with where you're going with that. But let me throw this out for you, that if you hire a lawyer for commercial law cases, that your expectation is that they would understand the laws around that case. If you were to hire an accountant, that you would expect that he would understand the standard of care around the accounting principles. If you hire a physician, that he would understand or uh, the standard of care or practice for the services that you're looking for. Why is it that we have an industry where the standard of care is thermal comfort? Like when people design buildings, it's, it's for comfort that people don't know the standard. We would never accept that in any other profession. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> Yes, that's right. And what people don't know is people's thermal comfort is uh, more important. That's where you have most complaint. If you look about indoor air quality, first of all, people adapt very easily to a certain smell in the space. Within 10, 15 minutes, you have adopted. People don't have the same sense for when the ventilation is not enough. The reason why people open windows is often to cool down because of temperature, not because of the air quality. Yeah. Because the main driver in maybe in 90% of the cases, maybe 95, is the comfort of air quality. That is the perceived air quality, the smell of other people. Yeah. And in few cases... It's some criteria for health that will trigger the amount of ventilation. But that's a few cases. But I think a lot of people don't really realize that. And the basis for some of the ventilation limit is subjective studies, where also a certain percentage of people, they uh, felt the air was smelly. And that's why we established the ASHRAE indoor air quality standard saying, one criteria is that uh, more than 80% should be satisfied. And we use that criteria to come up with uh, that. Yeah. So I want to sort of take it up to a bit of a macro level now. So you're a European yeah. as the head of a very august and large American in- engineering institution. So I've personally had the good fortune to work in over 20 countries. And the differences between mm-hmm. engineering cultures is fascinates me. <laughs> and I guess you must be seeing that, right? So what's it like being a European heading up an American organization? Because there are some very clear cultural differences between American design and other parts of the world, in my opinion. How do you see that? Well, yeah, how should I say? Well, I think we definitely can learn from each other. But one thing that I have seen is that there's not one part of the world which are the best in everything. Correct. We, we can definitely uh, learn from each other. And sometimes, but that has changed in ASRAE. I remember when I came on the board for 10 years ago, we talked about being global. 
ASRAE being global. But the attitude was at that time more than that being global would be like everybody else should do like ASRAE is doing. <laughs> and that, 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 that's not the way you become global. And that has changed completely. Right. Now, now the board and people, the leadership understand it's, it's being collaborating with people. It's a two-way exchange. We can learn from each other. You see, the world got air conditioning from the U.S. We got VRF systems from Japan. Yeah. We got radiant heating and cooling from Europe. And ASRAE can play a good role because we have members everywhere. So we can play a role to get the knowledge about technologies from different parts of the world much faster into our handbooks or our publications to our learning and so on. So go on, you, Robert. Yeah, so I was going to say, you know, Bjorn, having the background that you have I mean, you've seen the industry evolve around the world, really. I mean, you've seen it evolve in North America. You've seen it evolve in Europe and in Asia. If you were to look into your crystal ball, where would you see HVAC systems in you know, 10, 20 years from now? Will we see greater adoption of radiant in North America, for example? What will happen with VRF and uh, all of this refrigerant that seems to run everywhere in buildings, which concerns... Many people. Yeah. So, I, you know, what, what do you see happening? Well, our industry is very conservative. So there will be no big steps going on. Also, we are conservative. I experienced that from, from rating, heating and cooling, that even if it has been used in a lot of buildings in Europe, uh, you may not believe it in it in, in the U.S. before you have tried it in the building in the U.S. So... I think many of consultants, they are conservative. They know what they have done until now and it has worked. And our business is not a risky business. Nobody wants to take the risk. So the development is slow, but of course there will be development. I think there will be more radiant heating and cooling in North America. But radiant heating and cooling is not the answer to everything. The important is to look at what is the type of building, what climate zones are you in so it's not like there's one system that is a solution yeah it's, it's really I, looking on a case by case so I'd, I'd like to challenge you a little bit on not it's not necessarily a challenge actually but you know when an engineer does what he does because he's comfortable with it and he and and the word is because it works but if you look at you know the cbe published a paper here recently where they looked at over a 10-year period, I think 365 buildings, I think over 56,000 people participated in the thermal comfort surveys. Mm-hmm. Only anywhere between 2 and 17% compliance with ASHRAE 55. So when we say it works, what exactly is working? Because from the customer or the client or the occupant's point of view, there's failure at a very high rate. Yes. Well, we can take an example like uh, ASRAE meetings. <laughs> <laughs> They're never comfortable, ever. <laughs> no. So, so what, what, what I have experienced is when I go to the uh, window meeting, I have to wear my short sleeve shirt and no jacket inside. When I come to my summer meeting, I always wear a jacket because it's too cold. And the problem is here is not the standards. Because the standards are saying you should have higher temperatures inside in summer than in winter. But it's the operation. 
I think a lot of places they, our system is operated and the operator may not know anything about what was the design value, what standard was used. Because the standard, I think the ESRI standard is okay, but we don't follow it as the ESRI meeting when we set the thermostat. <laughs> Actually, that goes back. Yeah. yeah. People should also know that Bjarni also rocks a mean bow tie. So do you wear the bow <laughs> tie with your shorts too, or do you just the suit? <laughs> No, no. I, have, I have never had bow ties with my short now. <laughs> Actually, that was a very astute observation you just made because it's the application, right? It's the running yeah. operation application of the, even if something is averagely designed out of a catalog, you can still apply it better. You could have an outside air reset to moderate the temperature inside. There's so many things you can mm-hmm. do that are really low cost, no cost, right? That yeah. There's like a skill and knowledge deficit at the end of a job, that gap between the end of the job and the operation of the building. There's like yeah. a skill and knowledge deficit. But I'm a big fan of outside air reset. So, you you know, if it's 40 degrees outside, it doesn't have to be 21 degrees inside, right? It can be 26, 27 and still be fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. No, I, I know operation is, operation is a big problem. The let's say, the follow-up of the design yeah. and to really verify that it works, which takes more than a year. The yeah. first year of building, you still have to fine-tune it and so on. But normally at that point, uh, there's no money anymore yeah. a- and you don't use the time for it. So we need, uh, I think we need stricter codes for operational building Commissioning should go a little longer than not just by handover, but the next uh, one or two years after. Yeah. But I know that will be one of the themes, one of the uh, emphasis of ASRAE uh, with the president coming in in uh, one and a half year from now, or a year from now. That will be on operational building. So. Oh, that's interesting because we were speaking to the president of the Royal Institute of Surveyors. I'm just name dropping now. Uh, last episode, and he, the president that's going to follow him is from the facilities management faculty. So there seems to be a lot of emphasis going on to operational stuff, which is correct in my opinion. Yes. So I'm a big fan. I'm I'm trying to coin a saying, which is evidence based design and evidence based performance, and I think that is going to become a reality in the medium or even short term, because it's the cost to monitor and quantify performance is falling, in my opinion. Yes, yes. And that is going to make the difference. You know, it's going to be easy to see who's done a good job, who's not, you know, who's swimming, who's drowning. The whole thing's going to become very transparent, and then there's going to be some consequences, which and consequences lead to change. So I'm very optimistic on the future on the basis that building performance is going to become very visible going forward. Yeah. Yeah. With all the sensors been building into the systems and so on and all the wireless, you can get so much information. Uh, mm. So you can have a, like a continuous maintenance or continuous uh, commissioning of the building just by the measurement you do. Yeah. You don't have to have people come out and use uh, two weeks to do a lot of measurement. You have them all available. And that's where we can learn from the car industry. Yes, the absolutely. car calculates when it's time to do service, and there's something wrong, and we will see that, and that's a part of this uh, big data or internet of things, where we can make it uh, useful. 
in well, operation yeah. of buildings. I, you know, I'm totally on board with that stuff, and we've had some good discussions with some other guests on it. My, mm. my, my red flag is is that the manufacturers are marketing machines, and so the marketing machines <laughs> of internet technology does that become a priority rather than fixing the building? In other words, if people think that they can solve problems with technology before fixing the building, we've actually created more problems. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yes. Like, the problem is the building, and it's it's so it's architectural, it's building enclosure design, it's interior design, it's all of the professions, the lighting guys, the thermal comfort guys, HVAC. Solving these problems with technology just seems to me like a smoke and mirrors. You know, we have fundamental problems to fix first before technology. Yeah, but I think, well, yeah, so the main focus or the focus should be, and I, I think that's definitely a focus we have in Europe, it is to decrease the demand. To decrease the demand for energy. And that means basically also decrease uh, the demand for uh, technology. So, uh, and that goes back to if you can decrease the demand, you solve a lot of problems with the refrigerants because you don't know have to use refrigerants. And it may be easier for you to do cooling without refrigerants. And to do that, it just means different partners, engineers and uh, architects have to work together from the beginning. But I see many places that trend. I see it especially in Japan. I've just been in Japan visiting uh, construction companies and others. And the big design companies, they have both many architects, many engineers in the company working together at the same time. So I think definitely we see a trend. I know also one of the biggest uh, architectural companies in Denmark, they have now hired three engineering PhDs, which is unusual. But I think there is a trend. And that, of course, will help in that problem, that we don't try to solve things but just putting in more technology. Mm. But we try from the beginning to use as little technology as possible by optimizing everything. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think you know our listeners should understand that between the three of us, there's probably close to a couple hundred years of experience here. And I... <laughs> I can probably. I are, you, can prob are you two third of that, or are you half of that? <laughs> oh, nice. oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I can probably say that we've all been up the high tech ladder and probably fell off of it, knowing that simple is good. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. 
Thanks for your time. And now, back to the show. To take the point, you know, integrated design, I think, is the solution. The Apple solution is what you're looking for, right? Someone owns the whole widget. They're responsible for design top to bottom. But to take your point, Robert, about technology, you know, it's just, it could become a bit of a like greenwashing. If it's if the monitoring technology is good enough, it ultimately has to expose bad performance, right? And that in itself, you get an aggressive lawyer involved in that, you know, a couple of cases and everyone's scared and everything changes, right? Well, there is a well, case out there now, I mean, with a very popular thermostat, uh, <laughs> begins with N, looks a lot yes. like the old you know, round one, where the performance claims never materialized. And of course, people have taken that to task and have hired lawyers to address that. And so we're, we see that where people get, they get sucked into the, the mm. technology. And part of that, it has to do with utilities, right? So utilities are selling their services and they entice people to buy the contracts by throwing in technology. Like yeah. you get our favorite red colored round, high-tech thermostat, <laughs> And, you know, and it's all about energy and comfort and they put it in and they find out they don't save any money and the building just as uncomfortable as it was before. Yeah, I agree. I think it starts out as a prophylactic, but it ends up being like uh, the fifth columnist within. It ultimately exposes what's going on, right? And that's a great example. You know, yeah. if you've got a crappy building, having a very nice digital thermostat in the wall doesn't actually do you a lot, really. You know? No, no. <laughs> and sometimes... Sometimes what behind the thermostat, very sophisticated control, you can do everything. And the weakest point is the thermostat and the position of the thermostat yes. in the space. Yes. Uh, so, so what I think, what I would like to see in the future, that parts of the control loop is people. Yes. Now everybody has a uh, smartphone or sitting at a PC so why don't we ask them uh, twice a day how they feel? They are the ones who know the best. And integrate that in what should the system do? Yeah, that's it. Together, like with, that. together with measurement they have on, on the different system parts. But just to get people feeling. Actually, that is a great idea because that becomes an algorithm, right, with real-time yes, input. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That is awesome. I like that a lot. See, you learned something on this. I learned that. I like that. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> so, so, Robert, so what so, are you holding up there? Robert's okay, holding so up. I, I, I just got back from uh, spring camp, and this was from St. Gobain. You're familiar yeah, with St. Gobain. Gobain, yes. Yeah, and they gave me one of these sensors, and it's a, ro it's a room sensor. It's got uh, light, sound, temperature, and uh, humidity. And you press the power button, and it connects right with your cell phone, just like you said, Bjarni. So yeah. these, two, these two marry up, and then you can open up the app and you can feed back information. And, you know, I, they're handing these things out like bags of chips. So is that a, tre <laughs> is it a trend logger, basically? You put yeah. it on, well, you can trend well, log? No, it's, it's not a trend logger. It's a point in time. But the app, you can right. provide, keep providing feedback. So I, I agree. I mean, these are simple, low-cost things, that, and I don't know what the accuracy is of them. They're nowhere near as accurate. Going back to your early career, you worked for B and K. Yeah. Then she developing sensors, so I probably not as accurate as that, but still, you know. Hey, yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing more inaccurate than a pneumatic thermostat, right? And there used to be millions of them everywhere. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And yes, I'm yeah. old. 
<laughs> so, um, sorry, go on, Robert. You go. Well, I mean, I have so many questions. That's um, same here. I, yeah, I, you know, and I know Bjorn, it's late there, and you probably want to go to bed because you. No, probably, I, I'm I'm fine. I almost hate to bring up the word because it's such a it's such an interesting word, but I'm going to do it anyways, <laughs> and that has to do with exergy. Oh yes, dum dum dum. Now you lost half of the audience. Maybe I know, I, I know, and that's the danger of talking about this. But can you maybe find a way to explain to our audience why that word and why those principles are so important to sustainability and really to the existence of mankind? It's an it's an incredible word. But. Yeah, exergy is a way of taking into account the value of energy. And what we do with exergy is is saying, we're not only saying how much energy, but we're also saying, taking into account what I said, the value. So if you have something at a temperature of 100 degrees C, you can use it for, for many things. If you have the same energy as uh, 25 degrees, it may be the same energy content. Yeah. Uh, you cannot use it for so many things. So it's a kind of low-valued energy. But if you can use a low-valued energy that has also what we call low exergy, then you will save, you, yeah, you can save emissions to the world uh, and you would really, how should you, how should I say it? You will use less environmental resources if you could use all the low-valued energy, and we have a lot of it. But to use low-valued energy depends on what system you have. If you have a heating system, small radiators, which need a 70-degree supply temperature, and you only have energy available at 26 degrees, then you cannot use that. But then you have another system, large surfaces, where this may be enough. So, and by exergy and analyze system using exergy, uh, you can get a kind of value for uh, taking that into account. The problem is, when you write it in a paper, often I get back and say, there is a misspelling here saying mm -hmm. exergy should be energy. <laughs> and yeah. and it's, it's only few people who, who, who really works with it. It turns out, back one of my postdocs, he's doing a lot with exergy. Yes, working, yeah, yes, and he's working together with one of my Japanese colleagues who uh, even have made exergy analysis for the human body. Yeah, the Sakura? Uh, yes, Sakura. 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 Yes. Yeah. Try to show at certain environmental temp temperature the exergy consumption, exergy use of the human body is less, so we should put less strain on the human body. But mostly it's used to analyze system. In the chemical industry, it's used a lot to analyze a system and to optimize system. We are not using it so much in, uh, in the HVAC area. There are certain people who, who work with that. We have ASRAE, uh, have also have a committee uh, working with it. Yes, but, as, but, but, but as one of my uh, other ASRAE colleagues are saying, as long as people pay for energy, and not for exity, it will not really be interesting for people. But yeah. we could put prices on exity instead of energy. Yeah, return on exergy, right? And um, 
this is like this is a really important topic and um so just avoiding the technical part of it, what people need to understand is that when you take, say, for example, a barrel of oil out of the ground and you use that for combustion purposes, and if we turn it into, say, 1,700 degrees Celsius or 3,400 degrees Fahrenheit, you can't put that back into the barrel. Once you've ignited it, it's gone. And mm-hmm. so if, you're, if your building only needs 40 degrees C or 30 degrees C, but you're generating 1700 degrees C, that difference is gone forever. We can't put it back. So that means that we're actually, it's a very selfish act to take such high quality energy and use it for a low industrial purpose like heating buildings. Yes. yes. That's the sustainable argument is that we're taking away from future generations the ability to generate high temperatures for Mm -hmm. industrial purposes because we want to use it for non-industrial applications. See, humans are terrible at thinking long-term. We are short-term animals. We are short-term thinkers, right? The only Mm. way I have found ever sell exergy as a concept is when I wrapped it up with comfort, strange enough. Do you see what I'm doing here, joining all these dots? You like that? So I used to <laughs> I used to do some presentations on sustainable building design. So I I'd put up, I'd say, radiant systems, who uses them? Um, this is North American audience. No one would stick their hand up. And someone stuck their hand up once and said, oh, that's dangerous new technology. So I said, the Romans used it. How is that new? Was my first question. <laughs> but then yeah, yeah. we went... Then I explained, you know, about if you have a, you know, the surface area of a 60-watt bulb, you you can't touch it, whereas if that's over a wider surface area, you can. So we're talking about the heat and energy content, right? Mm. So then I get into, okay, if you have radiant heating, yes, you're in a low exergy system. You can use solar thermal, certainly where I live in Toronto, and you can be more comfortable and you can be super trendy and, a, you know, so that appeals to short-term thinking. The only way I could sell that concept was on short-term comfort and short-term I've got it and therefore I'm awesome and the other people are not. I see any way I could sell the concept of yeah. radiant heating, but that was also a way to sell low-exergy systems. So I managed to get the low-exergy conversation in my presentation that way, but, boy, it was a struggle, and it took me a long time yeah. to get to that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, if it's good enough for the Romans, who were engineers with spears, it's good enough for me. <laughs> well, well yeah, there were people who were long before the Romans. Yes. Mm-hmm. In, uh, the, in the, the Chinese part of the world, they, they oh, had God, yeah. They, they yes. were light years ahead. Now, I want to, uh, just to change the conversation a little bit, because you are an important person in our world, my daughter's just graduated as a, with as an with an engineering degree, and her and her cohort are so unimpressed with our industry. There are there are not enough words in the English language to describe how unimpressed they are with building services engineering. <laughs> Some of them would rather flip burgers than go into our business. And Ashray is one of the few organisations I think that could impact that opinion. Now, I don't, I'm not saying you've got to shoot your car into space and become Elon Musk, but, you know, that guy's got some razzmatazz, right? Somehow, I think Ashray and other institutions like them have to somehow speak to these younger people, right, and get them excited about the industry. How do we do that? Well, yes, and, and that has been uh, one of the topic uh, when I have been around the world, that uh, how do we get more of the young people interested in our industry? Yeah. Well, Asray is doing, uh, I think Asray is doing a lot. First of all, we have the student branches 
which are at uh, engineering college. And we have been very successful with that worldwide. Uh, I think we have about 12,000 student members uh, now. Fantastic. And we attract them also by having uh, scholarships and uh, when they are student members, very low uh, rate. But we have to get them interested even before they go into universities. And that's a little harder. But in Ashray, we tie through, we have like a STEM program where we ask some Ashray members volunteer to go to the schools and, and talk with the teacher in physics and mathematics and saying, we can go in, uh, in, in one of your classes and show them something that engineers are doing. Uh, so we have like a set of things that can be used in just demonstrations. And that's probably where, where it's uh, needed. Yeah. to get them interested in, in engineering. We just had uh, a meeting in uh, Brussels here one month ago, uh, and uh, as we have something called the Associate Society Alliance, where we have societies from all over the world who meet at our winter meeting. And I'm in the process, I want to make a global alliance. And one of the issues uh, here we discussed was, yeah, how can we make our industry much more attractive. How can we show the world how important our industry is? Because I always say we are responsible for 40% of the energy use. We are responsible for a good indoor and healthy uh, indoor environment. But many people don't see that. So we need to market ourselves much better. And I think people will see the importance that we, we save lives many places. But we have not been good at marketing ourselves. So that will definitely uh, be something that ASRA would like to work on. And especially when you make this global alliance together with society all over the world, because it's a little the same all over the world. Yeah, I, I think the ASRA is a just taking the ASRA example, you know, the way I would reposition ASRA is people want to know the why right? Why should I do this? Why are we doing this? And the why is, you know, we live with an economic model based on infinite growth and we live on a planet with finite resources, right? So the challenge is how do we keep the comfort levels and economic growth we have without depleting all our resources, right? That's mm -hmm. a big why. And the other thing yeah. is, you know, why do things, why can't things be excellent? They don't have to be average or bad, right? Mm. Get them, get, speak to their, um, not saving the world, that's a bit too Bruce Willis in Armageddon, but speak to their, it's, a, it's like a calling. It needs to be a calling, a duty. I want to impact that situation. I want to, mm -hmm. so you're looking for people who want to make the difference to resource depletion, Moving the needle on technology, it is a, it can be a sexy business, right? It can be about innovation. It can be about technology. It's about problem yes. solving. It's about comfort. It's about serving society. Engineers are in service of society. That's what I was always taught. But I think that message has sort of been lost a little bit over the years. I don't yes. know. Maybe yes. I'm being unfair here. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm getting no, old when no. I think about this stuff. <laughs> I mean, one of the challenges that we have is, you know, Think about this. I mean, Adam, you've you've had companies where you had to hire somebody. Yeah. And so you're across the table and you're, you know, sizing up this individual in terms of their personal skills, their technical skills, blah, blah, blah. And if that person is capable enough, then we bring them 
to our side of the desk and they yeah. become part of our team. One of the challenges I see that we have in the industry is that we, as an indus- as a, the leaders in the industry, rely a lot of our communication, our messages through people who we would never actually have on our team. And what I'm talking about is individuals that are actually, oftentimes these are the face-to-face individuals with clients. So they're more interested in how to put things together. I'm talking about trades, for example, than they are about the why. We don't yeah. teach them the why because they don't need to know the why. All they need to, they need to know the how. And so we, when we're looking for people who need to know why and how, we hire them on our side. But we don't do a very good job of teaching the how part of our industry why. Yeah, I get what you're mm-hmm. saying there, actually. The why is important, but it's never spoken about, right? Because everyone's in Correct. survival mode, yeah. get through the day. Yeah. Right. That's 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 a really important takeaway, actually, for me. Why yeah. why the why matters. Right. There's a t- so if we're gonna if we're gonna allow, you know, if if the HVAC contractors are going to be our voice, because ultimately they're one of the people, the, the part of our industry that has that face-to-face contact. If we're going to rely on them to be our voice, then we have to train them and teach them about our voice. Hmm, I like that. There's a TED talk in there yeah, somewhere. We've got to dig it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So again, it being unfair to you here because you are the global head of this massive organization. So obviously you can fix everything with a flick of your fingers, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Not. Still one month. Still one month, yes. <laughs> That's what I used to think when I was eighteen and looking at like people like President Ash, I was saying, Oh, the power, they must be able to do everything. And then as you get older, you realize it's just a committee process. And it's, yeah. it's like, you know, it's as you say, it's sitting in cold conference rooms, right? <laughs> Talking about <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> meeting yeah. minutes. Listen, we're coming, we're coming up on the hour now, so I'd like to sort of wrap things up a little bit. Being president of Ashray, I don't want to make light of that. That is a very serious business and it's a very important job. And, you know, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with about, about that and, and how Ashray can make a difference? Well, to be president, the main thing in, in the year where you are president is that you get more engaged with the whole world. Now, for me, that may not have been so big a change because I have been engaged with the whole world for a lot of my time. And But for example, for many presidents from the U.S., that's an experience where they, they see the whole world and they see we have ASRAE members in the whole world. And the interesting thing is that all these ASRAE members mainly want the same uh, to make a like a better life for people and make the world better. So the ASRAE role is when we look at it, when when the global world look at ASRAE, what I have experienced this year is on the one hand, most of us, the most of the world still regard ASRAE as the American society. So there have been many questions like, yeah, but what if the U.S. government, they don't want to be part of the Paris Agreement and the Kigali, uh, where does that uh, leave uh, Asway? But I always told them uh, Asway is not involved in politics. And I think on the contrary, Asway is doing even more for uh, making building more sustainable with our products, with our zero energy design guides and and in fact, the same is happening in the U.S. in many states and many governors. So 
the rest of the world do not have to be afraid that uh, the U.S. is not uh, focused anymore on saving energy or that kind of things. To be SRA president, for me, coming from Denmark, has helped a lot to make SRA more global or show the world that we are global. That has been a big benefit for me coming from outside North America as an indication of that we really want to be more global. And I think I have changed the things in the more global direction during this year. Bernie, ASHRAE was started how long ago? I mean, it was, it was AS, ASVE before it became ASHRAE. Yeah, so when, two organizations. Yeah, yeah, and so when was the very first organization? I'm, I'll come to my point here in a second. Well, when was the very first organization established? Do you remember? Yeah, it's uh, next year. It's 125 years ago. So the current for the our international listeners, the current administration in the U.S. will last a period of four years. That's four out, out of 125 years. <laughs> yes, <laughs> maybe. The, the, yeah, yeah, if it lasts that long. So the the message there is that what you're seeing really is just a blip in time that will get corrected. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and it has not had that big impact on. Yeah our industry. Right. I think on the contrary, many have, have taken, stepped up and wanted to show the world outside the US that we are serious about energy use and uh, lower emission to the world. Yeah, and that's a really important point you made. I'm glad you made that. You know, ASHRAE is an important organization. It's independent. It's a distributive technology, it's a distributed organization, right? It's responding to what's going on in the world. And quite frankly, whoever sits in the presidential chair doesn't, uh, the government presidential chair doesn't really matter, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that people need to understand is that the political voice is not the voice of engineering science. Nice. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. It'll never be the voice. I mean, I, I'm sure I might join along, but the fundamentals, the principles of physics and chemistry, the things that we know that exist all around us uh, exist regardless of political voices. That we'll never be able to deny ever. Let's go back to my favorite engineers, the Romans, right? That's the issues they were struggling with are the same issues we're struggling with today, right? How do I heat and cool a place? How do I build a bridge? How do I build a building? Absolutely. You know, these things are yes. universal. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and yes. And it will, it, it will be like this. Yeah. <laughs> the next uh, many years because uh, people will live in buildings yeah. else we cannot uh, survive. Yeah. And also, yeah. you know, actually quite frankly, in my opinion, is a force for good because it's moving the needle. It's the standards matter. They get adopted. You know, the committee work matters. It's grindy work, but it does have beneficial outcomes, right? It's just a slow moving train, but it works. Yes, it is a uh, slow movement. We're trying several times to speed up uh, some of the things. But as I mentioned earlier, our industry is also slow moving. Yeah. Uh, uh, not always because of aspect, but it is, uh, <laughs> it, is uh, it is slow moving. So Yeah, there's a lot of path dependency. Okay, so it's, it's called Midnight where you are in Cyprus. So um, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. Having you on was really important for us because who you are and the work you've done and the organization you represent, they are all reasons on their own 
that we would want to speak to you, but I'm so grateful that you came on and I wish you the very best going forward. Yeah, Thank I you. just I'd like to, echo, like to echo that. And I one thing that people again need to know is that within the hour discussion, we really haven't captured all of the things that you've influenced over the world. You know, that will be one of your legacies, I think, uh, Bjarni, and and uh, you'll definitely join the ranks of those that came before you. And yeah, it, it's been an honor having you on. Thanks, both. Okay. Thank you. Well, what can you say? I was really, really impressed. Anyone that can rock a bow tie and head up an international <laughs> organization, that's my man. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's, I mean, when you get to, I mean, even when you just first meet him, you understand how humble he is. He yeah. really is a humble individual. When you think about the things that he's accomplished in his career, I mean, these aren't small feats at all. And no. we didn't even talk about his his actual practical skills. Like, you know, he's a practitioner. Yes. You know, he's worked on many buildings around the world, you know, the engineering part of it, right? And he still, to this day, gets called in to do very difficult projects. So we didn't even touch that. Wasn't you he know? involved on Bangkok Airport with Peter Simmons yeah. at some point? Yeah, yeah, he yeah, was, yeah. We didn't talk about his uh, early research work. You know, he worked with a company called Bjarne Carroll, I think it was. It was a Danish instrumentation company. So all of the, almost all of the current instruments that are used for post-occupancy surveys, either at a research level or actually on situ or in situ, uh, you know, he worked on the early sensors. So there's, you know, people running around with, you know, thermal sensors, black bulb temperature sensors, you know, data loggers, all, I mean, that was, he did that stuff decades and decades ago. You know, we didn't even touch on that. Like he, you know, so yeah, what a, what a great guest to have on. I kept thinking that, you know, you look back in history, any history, but you look back in the history of our business you now. So he has touched greatness. He's worked with Dr. Fanga, right? That guy's never yeah. going to not be in the history books, right? That's like working yeah. with Benjamin Graham or Warren Buffett. It's just, yeah. you know, yeah. that's someone who's worked with them, you know, interacted, they've exchanged ideas and written papers together. That is just amazing. Well, yeah. So when you think about, like he mentioned two guys, Gaggy and Nevins, and, uh, you know, those are those are the, the some of the forefathers, as is <laughs> Bedford and these other guys from the UK. But he also was touched by guys like uh, Professor Rolls, and Rolls uh, worked with the Gemini space program. He was a, a psychologist, and he his job was to send the chimpanzees up into space and bring them back down and then do studies on them. Well, when his role at NASA was done, he moved over to Kansas State University, which is where Nevins and, oh, right. and Fanger and all that. So, like, you know, he's he, – yeah, in the, in, the, in the higher – not the hierarchy, but the, the chain – you know, the DNA chain of thermal comfort, he's one of the links. He really, yeah. Now, that was uh, that was a good interview. I really enjoyed that. I could have spoken to him for ages. Now, I, yeah. I liked, you know, people don't understand how big and bureaucratic an organization like ASHRAE is, right? I mean, just to, yeah. I've done some committee work on ASHRAE. It's, it's grinding work, right? There's no it question is. about it. But, you know, that institution matters. How many countries across the world adopt their standards? Yeah, that's all over. And that, that's another thing that we didn't talk about is that, you know, Bjarni, going, going back to the Asher, but, mm. you know, Bjarni also works with Riva. Yeah. He also, you know, works with Sibsi in the UK. So if you take the membership of Riva and the membership of Sibsi and then the membership of Asher, throw in the architectural institutes, that's just North America and the UK and the Nordic parts. But then you toss in the Asian countries and now also the Middle East. Yeah. You know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people 
that are involved in the development of these types of standards all over the world. And yeah. it is a big machine. And it is, but he used a good word, and that is conservative. And when it comes to standard development, it is a very deliberate process. Like there's no leap of faith. You yes. know, yeah. these standards are based on research work. So when, so you know, what happens is that somebody will be in a committee. They'll say we have a shortage of knowledge. A uh, call for research work will go out. It'll then, uh, and there'll be funding for that. And then, and actually have millions of dollars that they spend every year on research work. The research work gets done. Oftentimes it takes several years to get that published. That then gets adapted or brought into the committee. It's presented to a committee of, of peers. It gets reviewed. It gets challenged. And then finally it gets into adoption. And so it's a deliberate Process And so the conservative element of ASHRAE is done for a reason, and that is, is that when people like ourselves, practitioners, use the standards, we have to know that it's based on good, solid science, yeah, it's, and that takes time. It's like an academic peer-reviewed thing, right? There's a, there's a process there. It's meant to be rigorous because it has to stand up to public right. scrutiny, ultimately, yeah. right? It's got to stand up to something. Yeah. Now, that was interesting. The big, my big takeaway, actually, was why the why matters. I can't stop thinking about that. Yeah, that point mm-hmm. you made about there's almost like a production line element sometimes where you're just in there grinding away and you're not thinking about why does this important why is it important that I make this detail this you know this floor plan connecting with this window that my why I do that well because mm-hmm. for the next twenty five forty fifty years if it's leaking it yeah. matters right no one thinks like that we got to get no. back to the why the why has been lost in our business yeah. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that Ashray brings to the table and certainly Bjarne, because his whole career has been all about figuring out the why. But we have to find a way to get that other person across the desk from us that maybe doesn't have a role on our side of the table, but we can play a role to help them on their side of the table. And that makes them better technicians. It makes them more conscientious uh, designers and installers and manufacturers, you know, and I think I think Ashray have a a role to play in that. We just have to figure out how to do it. You know, I'd like to speak to some more people at ASHRAE, like the head of the Female Engineering Society at ASHRAE, because, mm. again, it'd be interesting to get her take. But, you know, the thing, when you first mentioned this podcast uh, about doing this interview, I was just super impressed because I, I sort of lost touch with ASHRAE a bit. I had no idea they had a Danish guy as the head of ASHRAE. That yeah. s- immediately got my attention because I just assumed it would be an American guy, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, he may be... Now we should have asked him this question. I know I believe there was one other president before him many 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 years ago that played the presidential role. But we'd have to get corrected on I'm that. I'm pretty I, I, sure I'm, it was a British guy. I vaguely remember a Brit being head mm, of ASHRAE for one term. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that could definitely be. Yeah. How appropriate that his very first ASHRAE meeting was in Halifax, Canada. Here we are a couple of Canadians. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, you're a, you're a, well, I'm a plastic Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> but you know how appropriate, right, that he, that yeah. he did have him on uh, t- talking to us as Canadians um, when his first meeting was in Halifax, which is a great – anybody that's never been to Halifax, you have to go to Halifax. It's an awesome place. That's it. I'll tell you, it's a big world out there. You should not – and this is, again, a bit of a trait in our industry, thinking locally. Yes, real estate is local, but the engineering world is global, man. There's so much going on out there. Yeah. If you don't have a global perspective, in my opinion, you're really harming your career and development. You've got to think outside of your immediate country. You should be looking to other countries to see what they're doing, right? Yeah. 
you know, we keep talking about we're going to have a, a, a business podcast one of these days, but yeah. I, think, I, I think it was uh, Peter Drucker. Was that Peter Drucker or Tom Peters, somebody like that? Yeah. I was reading one of their books and they were talking about what happens to individuals that become so stodgy and so fixed in their beliefs that they can't see anything outside of what's in their own blinders. Uh, and and the question they ask is, what if you're wrong? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, you know, the best thing you can hear when you have a conversation with someone and they say, oh, I don't really know. That means they're intelligent, in my opinion. <laughs> right? Because yeah. they, they, they're not stuck in their orthodoxy. There's no mental atrophy going on there. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I the the older I get and the more people I get, the more I realise I'm a bit of a moron, and my quest is to try and like squash that as much as possible and just get meet more people and try and understand more things. But yeah, you know, the more you know, the more you realise you don't know anything, right? That's yeah. been my that's been my discovery as I've gone on in life. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we've talked about this yet, but you know, uh, there was a, the four stages of learning where you have unconscious incompetence, yeah. then you have conscious incompetence, and then you have conscious competence, and then you have unconscious competence. B- basically, when you're born, you don't know you can do squat. You know, yeah. you don't know that you can drive a car. You don't know that you can't play a guitar. You don't know that you can solder pipe together, right? You don't know that you can't engineer a building. You don't know what you don't know. And then when you start to understand, so let's say you're going to start to learn how to drive, then you get in the first accident. You probably stole your dad or mom's car, and you, and you get into an accident. You really what you don't know right yeah and then when they let you drive again after you've been punished severely <laughs> yeah. right then you then you develop your, your skills and then you know what you know about driving and then ultimately you end up getting into a car you turn the keys with your cell phone and your coffee and your makeup and whatever right then the, and you get people running down the driveways down onto the freeways driving without thinking about it they've gone from unconscious incompetence to unconscious competence. And the problem is, is that when you're in the first stage and the last stage, you're out of the learning stage. You need to always operate in your life yeah. in stage two and stage three and always try striving to go back to stage two, yeah. knowing what you don't know. That's where you That's where you need to live your life. And yeah, I think a lot of engineers get very comfortable and they start, not, as you say, not wanting to take risks, not wanting to look outside their comfort zone. Mm. That's a big part of that. Yeah, and that's a good point. And there's no reward for taking a risk in our business, right? The guy that tries to do or girl that tries to design a radiant cooling system or chill beam system, that person is going to get resistance in North America from every design partner in their business. Everyone is telling them it won't work. The contractors won't want to put it in because the skills for that are not there. You know, so why why would that person do it? Why not just go with the old catalog out and pick some VAVs and fan <laughs> core units? Rooftop. Unit. Yeah, yeah. Get a rooftop unit, get a big gas out there. Boom, done, right? <laughs> you know, this, the incentive structure is so screwed up. It really is so screwed up. I don't know. Yeah. Again, I don't want to sound like a whiny old man, but sometimes you do want to put a bullet through your head when you see these yeah. things. But, you know, like one of the things that, I mean, in this podcast, you know, our, one of our objectives here is to bring leaders on to yes. the show and get their vision. And when you think about the people that we've had on to date, you know, uh, Peter Simmons, yeah, you know, a world leader in the radiant designs, Bjarni Olsen, the guy we just <laughs> talked to, a world leader in radiant designs. And we see that, that those that are globally based in leadership positions get yes. high-performance enclosures, dedicated ventilation systems, uh, natural materials on the inside and radiant-based uh, yeah. heating and cooling systems. 
Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, man. We live in an interesting world. Anyway, yeah. that was a, that was a good interview. So I shall uh, see you on the next one. Adam, always a pleasure, man. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.